college was not a path that I was destined for. And it was just a you know small town kind of upbringing. And going into the military exposed me to a system that helped develop me. It exposed me to leaders that cared enough to invest in me and help instill confidence and, and you know abilities in me. And I mean, public speaking and you know teaching and instruction, a lot of professional development that went into that. And then you know, mentors in the military that helped drive me down the path to college education. You know, one of my leaders I had a master's degree. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part four of our mini-series, Special Operations Lessons for Business, with Al Buford. Al's a 20-year veteran of the Special Operations community, both in the Army Rangers and the Army's Special Mission Unit. Since then, he's gone on to become a successful entrepreneur. He's a co-owner of the Patriot Group International and EcoAnalytics. And kind of exciting for him, this year they're on track for $100 million a year in revenue at Patriot Group. So Al, for part four here, uh, kind of wrapping up what we've been talking about, let's go for the question, when it comes to winning large contracts, what's your philosophy? What are the lessons you've learned over the years that help Patriot Group become successful? Well, I, I think if we if we stay on theme and we talk about lessons learned from the Ranger Regiment and from Special Operations and, and how that applies to business, I would say a key advantage that small elite units have over larger ones is that they can be more nimble and responsive. And so in business, if, uh, if, if an, organiza an organization is small, it can actually be an advantage. And I've actually been able to explain it to customers that, you know, we, we and demonstrate it to them in every communication and how quickly we turn documents and things around that we will get the job better done for you better than a larger company because we can move faster. We can meet your requirements faster. We will get you or your proposal faster. We will, you know, we'll, anytime you have a question about whether or not we've met a requirement or whatever, we're going to, we're going to address it very quickly. Whereas a large organization, you're dealing with, a, you know, trying to turn a uh, cruise ship, you know, it's, it's a really hard, they're not nimble at all. And so it's an advantage being a smaller business. And so, We've been able to actually communicate that in some ways to, to customer organizations. And another, another way to put it to them is for a, a multi-billion dollar company, a customer might be a bit of an ankle biter, you know, not so important. You might not get their best talent. You might get somebody who just graduated from college and they don't even know the acronyms of your organization. But for us, you know, your your contract would be a very significant thing and it would get our best talent and the uh, attention of our executive leadership who has credibility with your organization. So you can see how you can take that and turn it into something that actually uh, makes sense for them to pick a smaller business over a massive multi-billion dollar corporation. Yeah. You know, I think about this book that you got me into the, I'm going to misquote it. The The title is like, let's get real or let's not play. Yeah, Mahan Khalsa. Yeah. Yeah. T tell me what it is about that book that, that, you know, has kind of stand, stood the test of time for you. Well, I was in a, I was in a meeting with the first company I was with as a, as, as a veteran, as a civilian, Triple Canopy. And I was the, the first employee 
they're hired by the company founders. And, and I was on recruiting and hiring and all that. And uh, somebody from a government organization was there and they wanted, it was a friend of a friend intro and they wanted to talk to us about some training. And I happened to be in the building and I knew a little bit about training. And so I said, yeah, I'll sit and talk with you. The training folks weren't on site. And so just wanted to help maybe define the scope of what they were looking for. And then I was going to get them in touch with whoever the right person was. And one of the business development uh, folks was there and she had uh, experience with some of these big companies and she had been through training and she was literally a professional business development person. That was her career. That was what she knew how to do. And so I was asking questions about, you know, what, what do you need and when do you need it? And she started asking questions about their budget cycles and their resources and their organizational priorities. And where did this training stack up? What was their decision-making process? Who was involved with that decision and what decisions do they make and when do they, you know, what, how does this process play out from a timeline perspective? And we finished with that meeting and I said, Hey, uh, can I talk to you for a minute? She's like, yeah. So we go to our office and I said, so, so where did you learn to ask those questions? I mean, it was like, it was amazing to me. And she pulled this like five CD set out of her desk and it was Mahan Khalsa, let's get real or let's not play. And she said, it's all right here. And so I had about a 40 minute drive to work every morning. And I listened to that five CD set over the next six months, about eight times. And then when myself and my business partner started Patriot Group, I went and bought two copies of Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. I said, hey, guys, I really think it's important that we all are on this sheet of music because this is how we're going to win work. And if we can all sell, if we can all help find customers and drum up business based on their credibility with their you know, folks they'd worked with in the past and my credibility with mine, you know, maybe we can actually drum up some business, you know, if we have some actual technique behind this, you know, and, uh, and it helped us, you know, it helps a lot to determine, you know, what, what is the key thing that the organization is trying to accomplish and, you know, what part of that can we help solve, you know, and so that helped us. And I'll give you an example of, of how that worked. We were providing some specialized folks to a prime contractor on, on a government contract. And I remember one time I was talking to the program manager and he said, do you know why? Well, there were like eight other subcontractors on this and they had internal recruiting at this big company. And he said, do you know why I call you guys when we need a couple more folks on this program and, and instead of going to my internal person? I'm like, well, not, not really. And he goes, well, the internal recruiter is somebody who graduated college six months ago, doesn't know anything about my space, doesn't know anything about what kind of people we really need, doesn't know how to talk to them, doesn't know the acronyms. And, and it takes me six months to get three resumes out of her. And when I get them, they're the wrong people or they're not available or whatever. But when I call you, you come in the next day with three resumes of people that are exactly right for the position and you know them and you know when they're available. And so I get what I need from you in a timely manner. And because you have credibility with those people because of your background, you know, and so as opposed to the, you know, the, the young lady who's recruiting, you know, and so it was just a situation where we listened to what they needed. We really, really focused on it. And we had it spring loaded to fling at them anytime they asked for it. And it was a very, very niche specialized thing that they were looking for, like the purple unicorn. And we just, we had them on speed dial and uh, we offered them a great deal and they gave two weeks notice and they came on over to this program whenever we were able to get lined up on it like that. You know, you brought up something that is kind of fascinating to me. This idea of truly listening, like not just listening, not just waiting for our turn to talk or you know, listening in a way where we're really trying to get them as a human and, 
you know, like understand what's going on in their brain instead of just looking for the ledge to stand on to win a contract or something, right? And it's so basic. Everyone has talked about it in every business book since the beginning of time. Every seminar, every conference, people people extol it. And yet, the vast majority of us have not mastered it to the level that it, it needs to stop being talked about. You know, like it's something that every one of us would say is a critical skill. And most of us, it's like driving, you know, how like 75% of the population thinks they're an above average driver. You know, I think same thing, 80% of the population thinks they're an above average, above average listener. And yet when you spend time with those folks that are truly a master of that, of like listening with genuine curiosity instead of with an agenda, it's inspiring. It's magnetic. There's all these things about it, right? Can you talk about either your approach to listening or people that you look up to as listeners or just any thoughts about listening in general? Well, I think one of my best lessons on it was the, Mah- the Mahan Khalsa book where, you know, 80% of the equation uh, is upfront listening. And, you know, that's analogous to mission planning, you know, is the enemy situation, the friendly situation. You know, you're trying to do all of this information gathering about what, what the need is before you fling your product at them, you know? And so Mahan Khalsa was the guy, you know, his writing, and it, it really got me in the mindset of being more in the receive mode and doing more homework about what's important. And, and, it, and it's oftentimes, it's not just what's important in terms of the procurement and what's written on the paper of the government's requirement or your customer's requirement. There is a human or more than one human inside that organization who has some specific things that are important to them with respect to this procurement that they are charged with managing. And one of those usually is they don't want to pick the wrong company and look stupid to their organization. You know, if they pick the wrong company and the thing goes south and the, and the people, the end users don't get what they need or the, they pick the cheapest thing and it doesn't remotely do what it's supposed to do, then they have to start over. You know, they have to they have to get rid of that service provider. They have to have a new procurement, you know, and it's and it and it's sometimes that's legal vulnerability. It costs them, you know, legal time to, to defend that decision. So I think understanding that talking to the humans and what's important to them, I'll give an example. Uh, and this might even be like a Mahan Khalsa example, but in the procurement, the guy doing the choosing had a certain budget number he needed to stay under for his career, you know, promotion and all this sort of thing. And none of that was in the procurement documents, obviously. So it was, it had to do with a piece of an enterprise-wide computer system. So they ended up, the winning bidder figured all this out and ended up amortizing the cost of maintenance and upkeep and all this in the out years. So for that eight, next 18 months, it was going to be under this number. Everybody else, you know, put all the costs up front and didn't win. As an example, so understand what's important to the humans on the other side of the equation. And, and in our case, in a services business, it's usually about being responsive and, and sending, you know, having people show up that are focused on the mission, they are respectful, and they essentially, they do such a good job, they become indispensable. And and these are literally like, this This is what I talk to our folks about, you know, is, is being indispensable, you know, be out there and be willing to help out with ancillary things like carrying boxes and stuff and whatever you can do to help customers succeed in their mission. When they go in, when they're starting to do budget cuts, they're not thinking about getting rid of these Patriot group guys because because they're they're like they're they're going above and beyond to help us be successful. They're and the end of the human is saying, these guys go above and beyond to help me be successful in his career. 
And literally, I mean, you know, you go back to Arbinger into, you know, mapping out your job and you've got these stakeholders and, and what do I do for them? And having those conversations, you know, what help me understand what I need to do differently or better to help you succeed in, in, in your role here. Man, and the customer sits back and thinks, wow, you know, well, if I have this information by this amount of time, my reports are going to be accurate. Well, how about if I do those reports for you? You know, whatever. I mean, so just really going the extra mile to help your customers succeed personally and professionally is more than just meeting the scope requirements. And so you become indispensable. And so I, 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 I talk to our leaders about that. You know, how, how magnetic is that when somebody's willing to set aside their own agenda to care about mine? I mean, it, it's so easy to like someone like that. We all know that people buy from people they like, you know, if all other things are equal, you know, you think about everything you've said in the, in the previous parts of the mini series here about respect, right? And, you know, we all selfishly have our mission, what we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to put food on the table and pay the salaries of everybody whose family's depending on us. And, you know, we want, we want a we want to land a contract. We want a new customer. And yet the respect and consideration to set that aside and genuinely listen to someone and, and just kind of put our agenda on hold, take that hat off and, and actually be truly curious about what's going on for them, not only for our own agenda. And then having a little bit of uh, generosity to maybe do them a solid or do them a favor on something that doesn't have a benefit for us, you know? Anyways, I'm not surprised that, that you guys have gotten to the size you've gotten if this is the philosophy you're bringing to those meetings. And actually, well, well go ahead. Like we talked about mission focus and respect as being two of the, the, the key philosophies that we have here, two of the key practices and, and mission focus, whose mission? It's the customer's mission. That That's the focus. And so if it doesn't matter um, what someone's background is on our team in terms of where they came from, what they look like, you know, what matters is can they rally around that mission and support it? And if they can do that, you know, all this stuff about, well, you know, you need to communicate with millennials in this way and you need to get them bought in in that way. All of that stuff is covered when when everyone is respected, a respected member of the team who contributes, you know, to the customer's mission and, you know, they're effective. That covers all of those bases about all these various you know people's backgrounds and all that stuff. And by the same token, holding people accountable for performance. And if someone is not willing or able to respect everyone around them or to contribute to a customer's mission success, you know, having the spine to have those tough conversations and fix it one way or another. Either the people have to change or you have to change the people. Yeah. Well, maybe it's kind of a final question here. In your mind, either what's something that you wish you had prepared for more or what advice do you have for the rest of us comparing a business that's doing a million dollars a year or $10 million a year versus a business that can do $100 million a year? What What's different or what do you wish you had prepared for more or what advice do you have for us? Well, I think the most important thing is is to be an active learner and to constantly be reading relevant things 
you know, in terms of New Year's resolutions, I read something somewhere that said, instead of Facebook, read a book. And I thought, man, that's brilliant. Because if you think about social media, what a time waster that is. You have anybody and everybody spouting off with whatever emotional thing that is on the top of their head at the moment. And if you compared that with spending those same two hours reading a book that somebody spent their, you know, the two years of their life researching and writing, Think about the nuggets of wisdom that you can extract from a book that's gone through that editorial process and the research process and coming from, uh, you know, a credible person that you're choosing to read from, somebody that's prolific like a Friedrich Hayek or someone like that. Spending that time reading that material, consuming that material versus, you know, digging through all of the noise in social media and mainstream news. I mean, it's just... It's just mind-numbing the amount of bad behavior and just useless tripe that is just pumped into your brains when you consume that stuff all the time. But if you take that same amount of time, as you well know, doing 700 books a year, there's just, just so much more. So I wish that I had started as voraciously reading when I was 18 the way I do now. You know, and, and and I'll tell you, you you turned me on to audiobooks. I was trying, to, I wasn't reading, meeting my my reading goals as we discussed. I was only reading a couple of books a year, just based on time available. And you got me into audiobooks. And so now, when I drive, or when I'm doing chores, or anytime, anytime I'm in motion, that I'm not just like like sitting around like my family or somebody at work, I've got an audiobook going all the time. And I have, I've done more books in the last year since you and I talked than I did in the previous four or five years combined. And they're like really good books. Yeah. What, what, what are some of the, what are the, some ones you've enjoyed recently? Okay. Let me pull, just give me one second. Yeah. So I went back and did uh Friedrich Hayek's book on uh, the road to serfdom. And then uh, I read uh, the communist manifesto and rules for radicals. Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx, and Rules for Radicals, Saul Linsky, because I wanted to have a better grounding in some of the seminal works of folks who are out, you know, saying those kinds of things today. I wanted to go back to kind of some of the source of where did all this come from and why, right? And then when you read The Road to Serfdom by Friedrich Hayek, he was an economist from the 30s and 40s who came from Austria. Then he taught at the London School of Economics, and then he taught at the University of Chicago, I think. He, he was one of the mentors for Milton Friedman, you know, again, both uh, Nobel Prize winning economists. And so that kind of helped educate me on some of those things that are going on in the world and in our country. But I wanted to get away from the noise and get back to some of the fundamental, the seminal works on it. And so then most recently... A friend of mine, John Boswell, from uh, my special mission unit, he got his PhD in, you know, like something related to the Constitution and, and, and our form. And so he recommended a book uh, called Our Republican Constitution by Randy Barnett. And it's a fascinating book on how our country was formed, how we got from the Declaration of, uh, our Declaration of Independence to about 13 years later to having a Constitution and the process with the Federalist Papers and all of that, and then how the Constitution is viewed by both the left and the right. And, you know, each individual has rights that you cannot be infringed is how conservatives will see it or constitutional originalists will see it. And the other side will see it as a majority can, should be able to impose their will on a minority. And so that's how the other side sees it. That's what, and so our Republican Constitution is, is a phenomenal book. Atlas Shrugged, Ayn Rand, and uh, let's see, Death by China was a really good book. And, uh, oh, 
100 Year Marathon by Michael Pillsbury. That's all about China's plan to dominate uh, within 100 years. And uh, so those are the things I've been reading recently to try to get to some of the seminal works that tons of research have been put into by people who are just brilliant minds. I want to absorb that as opposed to so much of the noise that's out there. You know? And so I try to spend much more time doing that and much less time doing cable news and almost no social media. It's funny as you're saying this because I, I'm not a news guy. I'm a audiobook guy, right? But I feel like um, with Corona, I started getting like the news addiction and I would, you know, and I would have to check all the different news stations because there's just, you know, there's just so much bias. It was actually interesting to me to see how they could take the same event and make it sound like completely different events. Right. But it, it became this big time suck and it was like occupying my mind even when I wasn't on it. And I like had to like, you know, go to like newsaholics anonymous or something <laughs> and like it, like it took me a bit it took me a few weeks to like wean myself off of it you know there's a there's a media literacy organization if you google media literacy and they've got like things pieces of like graphics and things you can use to help teach your kids about being critical of the things that you see and so i mean i started with my kids when they were little about you know some you know they 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 they, they cut a tin can with a knife and then slice a tomato with it like it's still razor sharp and i was what do you think about that is that is that real you know and so being critical about the thing that's in front of you and, and what their objective is who owns it what's the agenda what are they trying to accomplish and so i'll do the same thing with the news stations where i'll go back and forth like during the last election cycle and go you know, in the same moment in time, this organization is saying this number and you flip over this channel and this organization is saying a number that's 20% less. Why is that? How can that be? Why, you know, let's talk about what they're trying to accomplish. They're trying to shape something here, you know, whatever. And so I talked to my, my kids about influence operations, which is something that it's, it's a military term for shaping the beliefs and opinions and behaviors of a population in a non-kinetic way. And campaigns are a form of influence operation. It's actually in the manual, right? A can of political campaigns. And so I explained to them that we are all uh, subject to these ongoing day after day after day influence operations. And so you have to see it that way. Don't just sit and suck in this information. Look at it and try to be critical about it. Trying to teach them the things that you're supposed to learn in college about critical thinking. Well, you know, I've appreciated book recommendations from you because I feel like as opposed to social media or the news, I get to intentionally brainwash myself the direction that I think I want to go, you know, instead of having it happen accidentally. Right. Well, I appreciate your perspective on that. You know, we, we've covered a lot of things here and we're kind of winding down. What would you like to close with? You know, is there anything we haven't covered? Is there, is, is there anything that you think would be fun to close with? Well, the same thing I talked to all of our folks about in terms of building a business, uh, mission focus and respect are, are, are two phrases I use so much because if you get that right in your business, if everybody in your organization all up and down the chain is on board with that and you select people who can be on board with that and your training, whatever kind of training you have cultivates that, it solves so many problems that would have otherwise occurred with respect to, you know, behavioral issues and all the laws that we have about how people are supposed to be treated and, and people's, 
you know, things that offend people and all this. If you're all focused on a mission, you know, you're not thinking about going to, going to a safe space in a microaggression. You know, you, we got a mission to accomplish. We got a customer and you're going to get, you're going to get rewards for us, you know, doing well. Everybody's in on that, right? I mean, so, so it, it gives you something to focus on and to strive toward and something to be a part of in an environment that you like because everybody's respect. And, and I go around and I check in with other people a lot about. Do they have what they need to do their job in terms of resources and decisions and authorities and accesses? And uh, what do we need to be doing better? And, uh, you know, you, you've only been here a couple of months, you know, tell me about your experience. And this, this one young man said, you know, I like it here because I'm respected and I didn't get that in my last company. And for me, <clears throat> that's a home run. You know, that's, that's a, that to me, that's a home run. And so, but I think the closing comment is this. I think it's important to re-recruit your, your talent on a regular basis, because if you don't, somebody else will. That's a great place to end. Well, can we get your company website one more time for people that want to connect with you or find out more about Patriot Group International? Yep. It's uh, patgroupi.com, P-A-T-G-R-O-U-P-I.com. Well, thanks for being so generous with your time here today. This has been great. Thanks, Jess. I, I really enjoyed it. And, and I want to thank you again for getting me going down the path for audiobooks and some of your specific book recommendations, and particularly the Arbinger material. It has helped me, that professionally produced material has helped me, helped us spread our culture of respect and mission focus in, 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 a, in a vernacular and with the graphics that I didn't have before. It really has been useful on a real human level. And every, all of our deployed folks and all of our back office folks, I buy those books, Leadership and Self-Deception and Outward Mindset. I buy them a hundred at a time. <laughs> I love it. You know, I think, I think that's one of the reasons, I don't know, we, we've obviously connected for a number of things, child rescue and these other things, but that material without hyperbole actually changed my life, you know, and, uh, and then, and, and continuing with it of like, you know, I read Terry Warner's Bonds That Make Us Free and I find out about the sources and C.S. Lewis and Martin Buber and, uh, and these other folks and leads me to Leon Festinger about cognitive dissonance. And, you know, it, it's I feel like they're like cheat tools for me to try and become a better version of myself. And so rewarding. Yeah. yeah you know, and, and, and being a, a, an active learner and a work in process, progress and a lifelong lifelong learner. There's a lot of great material there. And I just, I really appreciate that you exposed me to that. And I went to, I went to the, I went to their seminars for the Outward Mindset. Then I went to the facilitator seminar and I just, it's, it's, it's been very helpful for me personally. And it's, it's really helped us develop and grow our leaders to be respectful one, but mission focused and, and, and able to have those hard conversations in a way that will, you know, help things move in the right direction and hold, you know, not, not hold people accountable, but help them be accountable. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I guess I have a huge amount of respect for, for both you and your former teammates of, you know, like thinking about thanking you for your service to this country, to me, becomes more personal having spent time with you guys, because it became real to me that like, you were willing to take the risk of your kids not growing up with a dad, so that my family could have the lifestyle that we have so that my kids do get to grow up with a dad, you know, like, I, I really appreciate that selflessness and and you know two decades of your life and what you're continuing to do now from the, where you're well, at I, I i really appreciate that just but i have to tell you from my perspective you know i was a kid 
from, you know, a very poor household in terms of like, you know, what we had where I, you know, college was not a path that I was destined for. And it was just a, you know, small town kind of upbringing and going into the military exposed me to a system that helped develop me. It exposed me to leaders that cared enough to invest in me and help instill confidence and, and, and you know, abilities in me. And I mean, public speaking and, you know, teaching and instruction, a lot of professional development that went into that. And then you know, mentors in the military that helped drive me down the path to college education. You know, one of my leaders had a master's degree and he was an NCO in a special operations unit. And he did it all while he was there. And so he's like, he started driving me down that path. And so, you know, the, the social mobility that I have experienced, you know, as a U.S. citizen economically is a direct result of having been in the military and been developed from this, you know, kid who was not athletic, you know, terribly. I wasn't, I wasn't, I couldn't do sports as it related to team sports or anything. I had no, I had no skills, I had no development. And I had run cross country and I was middle of the pack and all that, but but when I got into the army and I got trained at the same level as everybody around me, I started seeing that I was quite competitive once I had the same mentoring. And so the army, the Ranger Regiment specifically, did for me something that is they gave me more than I gave them. And so I feel like I, I owe a debt to them. And so I helped. I try to help by volunteering through an organization called Three Rangers Foundation, among others to help mentor veterans who are transitioning into civilian life and into business. I had a, a friend, Mike Cheney, former first range battalion guy, and also a special operations guy who was a, a generation ahead of me. And he helped coach me a little bit just because someone had introduced us. And I was, I was the 20 questions guy. And so he, he helped me by coaching me in that way in business. And now, and I'm still in touch with him to this day. And so now I try to be the Mike Cheney for all these guys who are uh, getting out or struggling with transition from, you know, post-deployment life and being the man in combat to now, what am I now, you know, as a civilian and how can I, you know, become something that's, that's, that's meaningful. And so I try to help them by coaching them uh, in, in some ways and helping them get jobs and, and that sort of thing. And it does my heart so much good to see military guys then go and be successful in business. It's just kind of a personal passion of mine. Well, I love it. And you know, you talk about volunteering and I think about the great guys that we get to work with at Child Rescue, you know, Peter Donovan and Corey Bird and Grant Cazada, who've been putting on these events in Arizona every year. And, you know, I genuinely want to tell you that I appreciate you taking time to fly out to Arizona and do these trainings with these millionaires and billionaires that have been paying for Child Rescue for these years, because the reason they come back is because of you and, and, the, and the guys we just mentioned. You know, I know that you don't talk down to these guys. You make them feel like a million bucks. You, you, you make it such an inviting environment that before those events are over, I know they're already telling Corey and Grant, oh, I'll be back next year. And uh, you're a wealthy guy. You could just mail a check. And I appreciate you taking the time to come. So, Well, you know, I have, I have a blast with it. And, and, and those guys who show up, most of them are pretty hyper wealthy. And, they're, and they're, it's really, uh, it's interesting to talk to them. And, and I remember... I've told this story a bunch. I'm out there on the range and this guy shows up, you know, out there in Arizona, you know, he's a black guy, he gets out of a truck and I walk over, Hey, hi, my name's Al. You know, what's your name? He goes, Oh, my name's Howard. I'm like, are, are you, are you an instructor today? Or are you shooting? Are you participating? He goes, yeah, I'm shooting today. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Come on over. And so, you know, we're out there and he eventually cycles around to my station where we're shooting Glocks, you know, and he's got, he's got nice guns. He's got a real custom, you know, uh, AR and he's got a custom Glock and 
a nice equipment. And not only that, he's really fit and he is shooting really well. And I'm like, man, you are like, you're really good at shooting. You know what, what, what kind of work do you do? He goes, Oh, I, I play baseball. I'm like, you play baseball. Who do you play baseball for? He goes, Oh, the Washington nationals. It was Howie Kendrick. They're like, I didn't even know who he was, you know? And so then I'm back home and the next spring, I'm sitting down with my wife at this Buffalo Wild Wings chicken place with these big screen TVs everywhere. And this guy gets up to bat and it's Howie Kendrick. And I'm like, oh, that's that guy I was shooting with. And she looks up, boom, home run. You know, and he's like the MVP and all this stuff. I was like, yeah, that's the guy I was shooting with out in Arizona. It was, it's been a really cool experience for me you know, to get to meet that those kind of people and uh, just hang out and, and have fun and shoot and talk about guns. And yeah, I, I've, I've enjoyed the whole experience. And of course, raise money for child rescue, which I think you guys have done some great work. Well, and you know, you look at Corey, who's such a linchpin and making so much of that happen and stuff. He does Sportsman for Heroes and all those other things that you, I know you've helped out with a lot of that stuff. And uh, it's it really makes my life better to spend time with people who have like a philosophy and a lifestyle of service. So you make it fun for me to get to come to those things. Well, thanks, Jess. I, I, I look forward to seeing you again this fall. If we're wearing masks, we're, we're wearing masks, but I'm looking forward to it. Love it. Okay. Thanks again. Take care.